0: Hi there welcome along to the latest episode of the High Performance Podcast. As always you can find us on Instagram at High Performance. Professor Damien Hughes who will be asking the better questions for the next hour or so you can find at Liquid Thinker on Instagram as well. And a quick reminder that we have launched the High Performance Circle. It's our private members club that you can be involved in and best of all it's free. All you need to do is is just press pause in a moment on this podcast and then go to thehighperformancepodcast.com enter your email address, you'll receive an invite and then you're in the circle and you will get exclusive episodes, high performance boosts, keynote speeches, um, newsletters, loads of brilliant content. So feel free to head there right now. But before we go any further and get into today's episode, uh, Damien's with me. And look, Damien, one of the real joys for us is the feedback that we get on um, on our social media and various other places, reviews and things. And there was there was something that really stood out to you this week.
1: Yeah. It's always a privilege when people take us with them, whether, whether they're out on a run or whether they're going on holiday or experiencing particular tough times. It always feels a privilege that people invite us to accompany them. And there's a guy called Mark Kosminski that's been in touch. He was doing something incredible in May. He's running a thousand kilometers to raise awareness for male mental health help. And he's aiming to also raise £10,000 for the charity the blue ribbon foundation so we wanted to give him a shout out and just say how impressed we are and just what a positive difference he's making to so many lives
0: yeah and please understand that you know when you message us and tell us how much this podcast is helping you we see it and we feel it and um, it gives us so much energy right this is what you can expect on today's high performance podcast
2: And I think, you know, I would say actually, if I had to pinpoint one of the things that has made me do well is because I feel like I failed a lot when I was younger. And it was kind of, it's not just that it's not a full stop. Like it couldn't have been a full stop because you have to continue, you have to do better. You have to just get that fight.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
0: Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and this is High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Professor Damien Hughes, expert in high achieving cultures is alongside me. And look Damien, we've always said from the very beginning of this podcast that it's about inspiring people. And I think the best way that you can inspire people is to celebrate those who are breaking down doors for others to walk through. The phrase that we've used before, You can only be it if you can see it. And I think this person is a really visible person saying, hey, follow your dreams, do something that perhaps isn't expected of you.
1: Absolutely, Jake. I think frames of references is a really big thing for us when we talk about if you see it, you can be it. It's about bringing examples into your frame of reference of people that have been there, done it, and have been pioneers. And today's guest is certainly that.
0: Okay, well, she's certainly done plenty. And what we're going to discuss is exactly how she's done it, because I know that you listening to this will be inspired. Now, getting to university alone is impressive, right? Getting to Oxford University is especially competitive. But then to use your time at university to launch businesses, one of them just a month before her finals, is either incredible... Or it's a bit crazy. Um, but now, is it crazy? Because her businesses, a few years later, are turning over millions. She was named London's Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019. She recently made the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And her book, Working Hard, Hardly Working, is a Sunday Times bestseller. So what made her think all oh, this is possible? What drives her? What discourages her? And where does the energy come from? Time to find out. Welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Grace Beverley.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was a very kind intro.
0: Mm. Well, let's crack on then. What is high performance?
2: I think high performance for me has always been about hard work and that hard work not just looking like grafting all the time, but understanding when you need a rest, when you need to step back, when you can kind of look within yourself and look at where you need to kind of push forward. And then you know, being able to pick yourself up again and again when you don't think you're performing well, when you get in the face of failure or rejection, and that, to me, is kind of what signifies high performance.
0: Let's pick up, then, first of all, on the on the rejection. Obviously, we're interested to know those moments of rejection, but more important than that for our audience at home is what tricks and tips you learned to pick yourself up, because for a lot of people, get derailed once and it's over.
2: I think, I mean there's that kind of golden word resilience and it's kind of probably used way too much but i think it is so important you know i didn't get into oxford the first time and i really had to consider whether that was something i wanted because you know i thought it was always something i'd wanted and then i came face to face with it and i was rejected the first time and i was rejected in a circumstance where they said oh you know any other year actually you know would have been great but not this year and i kind of thought is this a sign, is this a reason? And then I went for it again and I knew it was something I wanted to do. I went into work for a year and then went back and applied kind of while I had a full-time job. And for me, that was just about recognizing, do you still really want something? And then not allowing rejection to change whether you want that, no. but actually, you know, sometimes you know, I've also had things that I've been rejected from and I thought, actually, you know what? That was a blessing. Like I wasn't meant to do that. I wasn't meant to be doing this. It's not the right time. And being able to recognise that is the most important thing. So I think for me, it's really about checking in with myself and saying, if this isn't the right thing or if they don't think it's the right thing for me, do I still think it is? And then being able to either push forward or to kind of course correct and change that direction.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because we speak a lot on this podcast about the fact that too many people see a failure or a stumble as a full stop. But it's not, it's a comma. Yeah, very
1: much. And what interests me there though, Grace, is would you... Explain a little bit about the context of developing that, like the role of your parents or other significant people that help you develop this art of resilience.
2: I'd say that, you know, I very much believe that there'll be a kind of impact of the people around me. I think it'll be the impact of growing up. I think for me, my probably both growth within resilience was, you know, I was... Told at school that I wasn't very smart and kind of told that I wouldn't get into any of the secondary schools or 11 plus or whatever that I wanted to. Well, what age was that? To, uh, Sorry. Kind of went, you know, just primary school. Right. Wow. And, and, That's and some I think, way to build you up, isn't yeah. It? I mean, hey. woo. <laughs> like, woo! Well, like, really well teachers. took that well. But I, I just think, and I knew that music was really my thing yeah. and that was kind of what I did and that was what I put my hard work into. And then what I really realised with music was that talent is fantastic and obviously, like, to get anywhere in terms of music, you do have to have that talent. It's one of those things that you really do have to have. But actually, hard work beats that every single day of the week. And I think by doing that music, that was one thing that actually continually throughout, you know, from doing that to a young age and throughout school and then kind of going to, you know, really tough places with that music, you just get rejected over and over and over. And if you can't look yourself in the eye and kind of say, is this something I still want? Yes, okay, I'm going to have to go again, suck it up, like, go again. Or or saying, you know, you can throw in the towel, you can't, no one's making you not do that. And I think, for me, in terms of external kind of pressure, my, my parents were never kind of really hands-on or saying, you have to do this or you have to do this. It was kind of the opposite of that in a way that meant you have to kind of look at yourself and think like, do I want this? No one's telling me I have to. No one's telling me that I, but people are telling me that I can't, but they're not telling me that like you really have to throw in the towel. So actually looking at that and saying, okay, I still want this. Let's go and do it again. And I think that when I think about it, that was one of the things that really built up that resilience for me.
0: And I do want to talk to you about the hard work element of that as well, because I, I want people to understand how important hard work is. But it's not just hard work on its own it's like i always say that hard work without passion is just hard work and passion without hard work is just passion it leads to nowhere so how do you how did you uncover the passion and then work on that
2: my problem with passion nowadays is that i think it's almost sold in a kind of superior and ultimately incredibly achievable way which not a good sentence so far, but I will get to my point. Um, I think that, you know, with the rise of kind of social media and you seeing people's careers everywhere and you seeing people fulfilling their dreams and all of that, the idea of this kind of passion and purpose, rather than being this thing that's kind of like... You know, you should be able to put into your work at different mm. points, and you should be able to, yes, follow your passion, and yes, that's a fantastic thing. But also, I think that it can now be sold almost as a kind of like must have, and it's kind of reverted this trajectory of kind of earning yeah, money, yeah. doing your work, earning your money, and then getting your purpose, or whatever that might be. It's inverted it so that we now want this kind of passion and purpose at the beginning of our working lives, and as soon as we hit kind of 21 and come out of uni or 18 or 16 and come out of school is this kind of huge anxiety that you're not fulfilling your purpose because I don't think that I have a big passion. I think my passion a lot of the time can come after the hard work when I see something's doing really well and so what I, I completely agree in the way that I think when you have a passion for something like I did for music or you know that it can be a real driving force in improving where you're going and it makes it far more enjoyable but what i think i really try and avoid saying as well is that it has to it's kind of a must have or it's contingent on your work being worth it or whatever that might be because you know there won't be the passion when you wake up or the motivation when you wake up at 5am and have to drag yourself out Mm. of bed there won't be it when you're rejected there won't be it when you've had a bad day and feel like you're not good at your job so for me it's really been about kind of thinking okay if I'm not exactly sure what my like big overarching passion is can I just get things I enjoy into my work and then I enjoy it more and more as I work harder and harder as well.
1: So if there's a young person listening to this then Grace what what advice would you give them in terms of I like your idea that passion can sometimes follow Mm. hard work but what advice would you give them to uh, to eventually discover that?
2: I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not against the idea of passion at all. So I think the main piece of advice is just to try and avoid the huge anxiety around the fact that as soon as you step onto the working ladder, it kind of has to be hyper lucrative, hyper fulfilling. This idea of what you see on kind of Instagram as people kind of living the dream, which mm. is, you know, I guess what is sold is that that doesn't need to be it. Some, you know, some weeks and a lot of the time, the large majority of the time for the large majority of people, working will be about paying bills and the extra on on top of that is also really enjoying it and being able to feel fulfilled and being able to meet wonderful people and being able to kind of just make office friends and like all of that. And that's all kind of part of it. So I think that a lot of what comes with passion is a lot of kind of overthinking around that. And I just say, to kind of take it back to what you enjoy, how you can get that into your work, how you can, you know, there are always going to be things that you don't enjoy, like you might not enjoy your degree, but you have to do it to be able to be a doctor, or you have to do it to be able to fulfill whatever career you Mm. want to do. And so looking at it in a kind of long-term and thinking like, how can I, what do I want to get into this at what point? And, And then making that happen rather than thinking, okay, I need to get a job next week, or I've got my first job now and I, you know, I'm really not liking it, fine, it might be time to change it. There's always time to change it and there's always time to course correct and all of that, but also don't necessarily believe the hype of there always being this kind of, you know, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life.
1: See, because that fascinates me because you could almost level that a lot of the image that that you sell when you were an influencer was precisely that, you're selling the dream. Like, you weren't posting pictures of you getting up at five o'clock, you weren't posting pictures of you studying, it was... It was the outcome rather than the hard work. So So
2: I'd say a huge proportion of the things that kind of perpetuate this in our culture now are because the reward mechanisms of social media, that's Mm. what, is kind of perpetuated. So that's what we'll do well on the newsfeed. That's what we'll do all of this. And I don't think, I don't think anyone's blameless in it. And I, I think I will, have, you know, I talk about in the book a lot how much I've had a part to play in this kind of perpetuation of hustle culture and the idea of what hard work looks like and that it looks like always like working while other people are sleeping and doing all of this and no rest, all like hustle and kind of all of this. I also do think, however, that I have always been particularly mindful of the fact that, you know, when I was doing for example when i was doing social media at university the only way i would have been able to do it is by checking in again and being like hey guys still in my room writing an essay because that's what my kind of life was like so while i think on the one hand there was kind of that and i've always been mindful of that and i'm sure to some people i'll symbolize this idea of hustle culture or selling the dream or all of that i think also on the other hand it's a kind of culture of then what stands out so when i will have shared the kind of down moments or the all of that the the Ones that are a lot, you know, like uh, kind of reach a lot more or do a lot better or get the press or are the kind of big announcements will always be that. So, of course, there will be absolutely for a lot of people. And I'm sure at some points more than others, maybe when I would be feeling more insecure about how I should be sharing my life. And so I'd be trying to look like an entrepreneur and a CEO and all of that. I'm sure it will have looked different and I guess what I really wanted to do in my book is to recognize all of that and to recognize the kind of the landscape that we're operating within in terms of social media and actually being able to also equip people to be able to recognize that more when they're on their social media from day to day.
0: So have you changed then how you operate on social media?
2: I'd say I've probably changed in terms of being more conscientious but probably more less so in the idea of re- like living the dream more so in the idea of only sharing when I'm really working hard and only sharing when I'm kind of like hustling the yeah. hustle and doing this and the other because I think it creates a really unrealistic perception of work and creates this kind of idea that hard work is only about working 24/7 when actually like we're all human beings and we all need sleep mm. and we also, you know, taking time off a lot of the time or taking weekends will make your work better. And yet this idea of work and productivity is now sold as just busyness and looking like you're kind of like always on the phone with those kind of like entrepreneur phone call pics. But like, and, and I think for... There's been an increase in conscientiousness from my perspective, I'd say 100%. And I would definitely say that in no way have I been kind of faultless in this at all. I'd say I've probably perpetuated a huge amount of it. Um, And I think there are definitely ways where I could have been better and then have said, you know, if I'm posting a photo at 2am because I'm still at my desk is that because I want to prove to other people that I work hard and I want them to think that I always work till 2am or is it just because I wanted to post that mm. photo and really having that kind of like secondary layer of questioning and be like okay yeah no actually that's just because I need that validation or I need that or I'm kind of insecure about how people see me or how people take me seriously.
0: Uh, and I think influencers get a bad rap right? I think that people see them as an easy target for talking about all the things that are wrong with society at the moment go, no, they're, they're, look at those influence over there they're the problem but actually we all do it we're all guilty of this like I will go out for a meal with my family and I'll never put my kids or anything on social media but we'll go out for dinner and you know those like you don't have children do you no right when you do if you do you'll have some crap meals out right where everything <laughs> goes wrong and they chuck stuff or something horrendous happens and you think geez. Well, this is horrendous, but at the end of it, you go, "Come on, let's all have a photo." And all the yeah, kids yeah. sit around and smile, and you take a photo. And you, we have a family WhatsApp group, so we then put that in the family WhatsApp group. And what do my brother, and my sister, and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law yeah. think of that picture? They go, "Oh yeah, there's Jake with his podcast and his TV career, and his perfect two little kids mm. having a lovely meal." So we actually all do this. I think what we have to do is realise that even when people like you have that moment of enlightenment, right, where you go this is not healthy, probably not yeah. healthy for me, definitely not healthy yeah. for other people. Great, millions and millions of other people haven't seen that, yeah. haven't made that realization. Yeah. And loads of young boys and girls are growing up seeing edited, curated lives, yeah. comparing but, them to their own. So we have to work out how we deal with it, I think, because it's always going to be there. Even if it's not there from you, it will be there from someone else. So Do you compare? And if you don't, what, what have you learned so you don't compare.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'd say I'd say firstly, I completely agree and I think the, you know, we hear about these kind of highlight reels the whole time and how social media is a highlight reel and yet we absorb mm. it in a completely different way. And I think part of that is also because, you know, even if you had a 24-hour stream of someone, you wouldn't then see the next day or you wouldn't see the day before or whatever. And so it can never be fully contextualized and I think there is a duty of everyone who uses social media as well to be able to contextualise it for themselves. And the important thing there is to be able to, you know, for someone like me to be able to say, yep, yeah, you know, this is what it looks mm. like sometimes, but this is what it isn't. In between that time, like, you kind of also have to <laughs> fill it with your, like, imagination because, you know, I won't be posting all the time or this person won't be posting all the time. And you're so right in the way that you say that actually... It's, it's on every single level, which is, I think, why I wanted to talk about it so much is because, you know, it's not just whoever you're following or that celebrity or, you know, that person who went on that show or whatever. It's also like your first ever colleague or your like uncle's friend's dog or like your, you know, and you see mm-hmm. all of that and that's exactly what you're absorbing. And so it's never just going to be, it's kind of veiled in relatability but it's it's not, it's still that snapshot, it's still that real. But in terms of, sorry, to come to your question on um, do I compare, I think, of course, and I think a lot of the time where I've actually probably perpetuated this idea of hustle culture and this idea of a kind of highlight reel and all of that will have been more when I will have been trying to prove something. So when I will have been kind of, as I said, trying to act like a CEO or act like an entrepreneur or trying to get people to take me seriously in this, that, and the other way. And so there's a kind of because that's how hard work now looks like, that's the way I need to now appear to be working hard. Mm. So I now need to appear to never sleep and to never, you know, take a weekend off and to always be highly stressed out my mind, but also being able to balance having a social life and all of that. And I think those are the times where actually it's probably been more so a coming from my side and that's been because of comparison that's been because i'll see the next person who's doing a similar job to me doing you know turning over x amount or doing this campaign yeah. or doing this that and the other and they'll be doing the same to me and that's the exact same it's not just on and when you my get level. that
0: little comparison moment what are your tools for dealing with that and reminding yourself that their their happiness doesn't take away from yours
2: well i think in part for me it will obviously there's a part of it that I've spent nine months writing, writing a book about it so there'll be you know part of that that I'd say is less there for me now but actually it's just all about contextualization you have to contextualize things yourself because you can't message every person and say like oh do you think like like what did you do earlier this day or like is that actually what your skin texture looks like or do you have you ever taken a weekend or whatever whatever it might be you have that duty to kind of see your life in a different way to the way you see other people's. Not in a way that you're kind of lying your, to yourself or kind of making it harder for yourself to do well because you're not being honest with yourself, but actually just acknowledging that actually a lot of the time what you see online mm. isn't real or if it is real, it's completely removed from any context. And so you didn't know the teams behind it or the makeup artists behind it or the, you know, all of these various different things. And for me, I, you know, you, it can't be about anyone else. It just has to be about saying, like, okay, I need to contextualise this. I need to get to the bottom of that for myself.
1: So, how do you determine who deserves to see the real you, then?
2: I have a very kind of small, close circle, but it's, you know, it's anyone who's anyone who's been a good friend, who I've worked with, all of that. Um, and so what's
1: the criteria then that you that when they say to you, you're getting too high on your own supply or you know you're got, you're posting too many self-aggrandizing uh, <laughs> posts on social media who's the ones that you would listen to and go you understand the context of my life your criticism is valid
2: I, I mean I'd say probably anyone that knows me in real life I'd say anyone who knows me well in the same way I'm, I'm sure that it's you know there'll be a certain perpetuation of yourself that will kind of be across or people will see on broadcast or whatever and they'll kind of put these jigsaw pieces together but it's actually only two pieces of jigsaw but they think they've seen the whole puzzle and so it's really hard to kind of say oh no you know this is what you should have come across ads because you might have been briefed to do something differently or it might have been this that and the other whereas actually the people who know you in real life and who will know those answers to who you really are Mm -hmm. and can also see like okay yeah I know you're really like that but actually you're not coming across like that now Is there something wrong, or do you think this works better for you, or whatever? So yeah, I mean, I've always said that I I probably have the the most apt ones for kind of the most honest like friends ever, who will constantly kind of be like, you know, what's the best piece of
1: feedback they've given you then that you've taken on board and done differently?
2: I actually would say it's probably about paying attention less to what other people. Think online because that's probably where people who know you in real life will see where it really if it does really affect you um, and there will have you know over the past few years it hasn't as much but actually when you start out and being particularly young as well or being kind of bombarded with all different opinions an opinion doesn't necessarily have to be kind of trolling in order to be something that you don't necessarily want to hear and and therefore when that can really affect you and your self-confidence probably the best piece of advice then would be would have been from my friends and just being like just stop it. if it doesn't you know if it doesn't serve you yeah. or it doesn't if it's it's affecting your self-confidence or it's affecting the way you do your job. Just, just you know, like stop taking it in. You have to create those boundaries for yourself.
1: So how do you do that? What's the criteria you do to, to not receive that criticism?
2: Just being able to, I guess there are some ways that you'll always receive that anyway. Um, and But it's about the way you deal with it. So I guess being able to look at it and say, okay, this is one person's opinion great like i I don't know about their life either so i'm not gonna you know so there's kind of yeah i'd say i'd say probably just being able to contextualize it for yourself and step back and kind of move on with your day
0: it's an important skill to develop and it, it takes time to develop it as well i'm i'm in my 40s now and i'm only just getting to grips i'm not good at um not being affected by what i see on social media so I work in football, right, so everyone has a really strong opinion about one team or another. So no one's impartial. So you'll always come off air and you will be told by numerous people that your work is awful or you're biased or whatever. At 42, I'm now able to move on from those comments and and realise that if I pay no attention to them, I have to make a decision to also pay no attention to the positive stuff. I have to decide that everything on social media, I am... I, is is neutral to me, right? 100%. Did you ever get, because it is easy, isn't it? And I know I did. Did you ever get a bit addicted to the positive stuff and have to make that, that decision yourself?
2: I actually, I have a whole chapter in my book right at the end about the fact that I actually g- kind of grew on social media at a stage where, you know, I was 18, I think it was, when I started it. And then really grew on that in a point where I was actually probably way too low in self-confidence to be... Getting that validation from elsewhere, Mm -hmm. which meant that I thought, you know, miraculously, a year later, I was suddenly this really confident person. And then when I decided to step back from social media more and to concentrate on the businesses, that Kind of miraculously evaporated because actually it was more that that was being filled by validation mm-hmm. rather than internal confidence or a belief in self-worth, regardless of how well I was doing or how productive I was being or how many you know people were liking my content that week. It wasn't. It, I actually wouldn't say that. It wasn't necessarily related to numbers at all. I think it was related to because you know I would really share myself, and so when that validation comes in on a on a cell on a I guess quite authentic self that you're sharing, you're kind of like okay. great. It's was like, you know, like the verdict's out, I'm not that bad, like it's all cool and actually then I realised when I decided to step back and when I decided to concentrate on these other things and when that wasn't there as much because I wasn't putting things out, I was kind of like, oh, it wasn't that I was suddenly super confident, actually a lot of this was because I was allowing external validation to fill up self-worth.
1: I'm the father of a young daughter, as Jake is, and this is quite a selfish question, but mm-hmm. from our point of view, as fathers of young girls then, what can we be doing to to almost water their self-esteem and not requiring them to have validation from those kind of external factors?
2: I think it's very difficult, and I think it will probably apply to um, both girls and boys, I'd say. Um, I completely see how it would be Particularly, um, kind of exacerbated um, on the women's side, especially how like women are received in the media um, and kind of perceived in the media. Um, But I'd, I'd say it has to be about developing a self worth that is unconditional in comparison to other things. So I guess as you as you go through life, you start you realize that actually you know you can be less than impressed with yourself but you still have to have this idea of self worth you're still like mm-hmm. worth appreciation and acceptance and love and all of these things and that's not tied to whether you lost your job that's not tied to whether you actually missed that deadline or or any of that and you have to be and that's kind of something we build up i think now however before we build that up a lot of the time that is filled with things like external validation that are really quick hits to that self worth they're really quick kind of boosts so i think it, i i think I definitely don't have the answers and I don't think it can be just about saying, Oh, well, you need to not go on social media because that's not helpful. You need to be on LinkedIn to get a job. You need your business needs to be on social media to do well now. So. Ignoring the existence of it isn't going to help. What is going to help, I guess, is the education around the effects of social media and how you can, rather than just kind of demonising the platforms altogether, actually acknowledging how you can deal with it better and what your relationship is. We all need to be asking ourselves, not just young people, not just women, we all need to be asking ourselves as well how it particularly Affects us when we're in low or when we're kind of feeling in a really great mood. And that's what I had to do. I had to literally write down a questionnaire of like, how do I feel when I post this? How do I feel after a bad day when I post? Do I feel better? That's probably like not good. That's probably I should be finding that elsewhere by going out to dinner with my friends or something. And asking those questions, I think, is the only way we're gonna get around it, because we can't just say like, no, just don't use social media. That's not yeah, an op- sure. It's not an option now, or it is, but it's not going to get you the same opportunities, or it's not going to get you the same, you know, like in friend groups now, I'm sure at school, they kind of have to be in order to get invited to things, in order to do all of that. So I don't think the, way, the best way to combat it is to just say like, oh, don't do it.
0: Yeah, I think part of the risk is the importance that social media has in your life. And I want to move on and talk about your brilliant and successful businesses. And I wonder whether actually, Building those businesses has really helped on the social media thing because if all you're about is Sharing 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 and you're getting positive which makes you feel good and negative which makes you feel bad Like there's no foundations there, right? When you start to create a business as successful as the businesses that you've done Actually, suddenly that means less because there's something else that means more and that thing that means more is real Like you've created it. You've built it. It's your baby and I wonder whether that actually helped to change your mindset
2: I think that was why I needed to change my mindset. I think that's what really made me realise. I was like, okay, I rely on this validation and yet I feel better from this than actually when I look at the back end and realise that this is doing amazing. And I wouldn't really. I would like look at it and be like, no, this one does make me happier, but this one's instant gratification. It's a quicker fix. It's all of that. Mm. And so I think in part, yes, you're right in that I had to... Lots of that is, I guess very exciting and that's why I think that we don't necessarily want to demonize the platforms altogether because it's also can make amazing things happen I mean these businesses have have been grown their marketing has been almost entirely on social media at least initially was at the beginning and those things as well kind of need to be celebrated too so I think for me that was really important and kind of just being like yeah you know this is great and you've done this and you can see that you've done this and that's not about you know how you look or how you come across in this way or anything so that was important.
0: Right, business. Okay. You go to university. Um, for a lot of people, going to university, trying to get a degree, that's like enough, okay? Somehow you had two things. The spare capacity to find the time to create businesses, but the self-belief that it was something that you could do. I'm interested to know where the self-belief came from. Was there a moment where you were at uni and you go, I'm just gonna set up my own <laughs> brand here in my spare time.
2: I'd say. remember the moment? I'd say there definitely wasn't that moment and I'd say actually I get asked a lot about kind of self-belief and taking the leap of faith and all of that when you contextualize my story my story was about the fact that my student finance didn't come in I was told I was suspended from the university and I had to make some money and I was already I already had this platform of around 100,000 followers I think at the time and I thought Right. <laughs> like, I, I'm already putting out this content. How can I make something that is worth money, not just something that can be yeah. free online? How is it going to help people? And how yep. can, you know, it be something that I feel great about selling? Because, you know, as I've said, I'm not, I, I don't do things by halves. So I went home that night after calling the bursa in hysterics, kind of saying like, is this... Is this okay? What's going to happen? And they, you know, my official email said like, after the 10th of January, you will not be allowed on campus. And I kind of thought, well, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I'm really going to need to be allowed. Um, and I called student finance and everything and they said, look, it's going to be fine. Thanks for letting us know that it's a delay on their side and that you're not paying for it. And I was like, where am I getting oh. that money from? Um, but, and, and I hoped it would come in in time, but I basically said, you know, at least I can, you know cobble together something or if I'm mm. not going to be at university or whatever it might be and so I went home that night and I wrote this entire I think it was eight week guide with like full it was a it was very long it would be thousands and thousands of words and put it on and and got my friend who was a graphic design student to design it up because I don't think like things not looking nice um then made myself a Shopify website and then actually partnered with a company. Stop my Shopify website because I partnered then with a the company who was going to do all the s- customer service and um, yeah. do the website and everything, and then stuck that up on sale two weeks later. And within the first two days, i would sold a thousand copies at thirty-five pounds each of what of this of this guide, um, this fitness guide. World, yeah. um, so it was a fitness guide. It was a fitness guide that was so f- actually I'd done something else. That the you year wrote in one evening that I'd wrote in. No, it was about. It was a stint. It was as if you've got like a dissertation due tomorrow. It was an energy drink, full on stint. And then I perfected it over the next few weeks. It absolutely wasn't just in that time. Do you think
1: you'd have ever done it if you hadn't been forced to out of desperation?
2: Do you know what? I think not as quickly. I, I had it in my mind, that's why I was able mm-hmm. to come up with it that evening. And it was gonna be something I was gonna do later, but because at the university I went to, it, it you were not allowed to have a part-time job. The idea is that the terms are so short that you can have a part-time job outside of that. I yeah. have views on that, I don't think it's very fair, but that was the existence. So if I was gonna have a part-time job of some form, it was gonna to have to be something that, um, you know, for each bit of, you know, each guide that went out, there was no more work for me, unless it was a kind of customer service issue or whatever that might be. Um, and also something that I could fully wholeheartedly say at all times that my number one priority was university because otherwise yeah. I'd be kicked up for another reason. So that was you know that was really important for me. And I think the that's why I like drawing attention to it because I actually think I've given a lot of credit for this kind of like leap of faith and all of this. It's yeah. like I didn't have to lo- lose my day job. I didn't need to kind of leap onto this that or anything. Yeah. I had to make something work and yes it was resourceful and yes I'm very glad I did it and yes I then was able to replicate what the good was in that and make it into X amount more products that did fantastic well and ultimately grew into what Shreddy, my first business is now, in all of that, there wasn't this kind of like big moment of like, you can do this, so you should do this. It was kind of like, you need you to need do to this. Do
1: so there was a great line that you said there, you can do it once and be lucky, but then you replicated it over and over again. And you said that I worked out what made it successful mm-hmm. so I could replicate it. Would you tell us more? Like one of our, yeah. our favorite phrases on this podcast is success leaves clues.
2: Oh, I really like that. I really like that as a phrase. Um, So for me, it has been so true. I have tried so many things that have not worked and what looks like my business is now is the sum total of all the things that have worked done again and again and again or tweaked slightly, made improvements, fixed problems or come into an industry. My second business was a very disruptive business that came into an industry that I believed already had problems. So someone else's success left clues for me there. So the important thing there is being able to test things and replicate that based on what works and based on you know how you can further that so A lot of the time you'll create a product that people might like, but you have certain complaints or people think, oh, I didn't buy it because of this. Getting that information is fantastic Mm -hmm. because that's exactly how you can replicate. Um, And I always say, you know, within my businesses, the way we often work is about testing and learning. So this kind of test and learn approach of, you know, we're going into more email marketing. So we're gonna test this, we're gonna learn based on that. We're going to start advertising out of home. So we're gonna test it, we're gonna learn from it. Did it convert? Probably not because it's out of home. So it's not based on conversion. It's actually based on exposure, all of these various different things. And you need to be able to do that and you need to be able to. So I guess, I mean, in that as well, there wasn't one big leap of faith, but there are continuous, constant, every week, multiple little leaps of faith of being like, let's try that. Shit, okay? (laughs) Doesn't work. And and that's what you hear again and again.
0: And I'll tell you why that's important, because I say this to Damien actually yesterday, sometimes I get people that I don't believe have listened to this podcast, right? Because I'll say, oh, Grace Beverly's on the pod this week, you've got to listen to it. And someone will come back, I don't want to listen to another person with their amazing success story. And I always will go back to those people and say, listen, you haven't listened to the podcast. Because this isn't survivorship bias. This isn't just the successful people where they've tried one thing, it's worked. And they think that's the answer. What is great about the message there is you've tried stuff, you've failed. You've tried again and failed. You've gone down this avenue and realised it's not for you. And I actually think that that is a recurring theme right from your very beginnings, really, is that you learn, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, that failure and struggles is yeah. not a full stop, it's a comma. And we all have to almost expect struggles and failures. We Young people think they're on the wrong path when they have those, and they're not. Yeah. They're an inevitability, aren't they?
2: But I think it's important then as well when you look at it and you say, like, you see the successes, you don't see the failures that leave them again mm. and again. All people will have seen products that, you know, we don't sell anymore, like when I sold, like, a T-shirt of merch back in the day. Or, you know, all of these things that you just don't come with you and are things you kind of learn from. And actually that's the important thing. You have to learn that it's just not always about that. And I think, you know, I would say actually if I had to pinpoint one of the things that has made me do well is because I feel like I failed a lot when I was younger and it was kind of it's not just that it's not a full stop like it couldn't have been a full stop because you have to continue you have to do better you have to just get that fight and like make it happen
0: does failure derail you at all
2: I mean I think it probably derails me a bit but I think I have probably a slight kind of toxically positive attitude now towards (laughs) failure in the same way as you know the day I didn't get into Oxford I applied for my job at IBM that I worked Mm. in the next year in order to be able to go to apply again. Um, and I kind of have this, like, okay, like that didn't work, onto the next, like, you know, make that work. And I think sometimes actually I probably could take a step back.
1: Because I was going to say that, that like even emanating from you as we're meeting you, there's a real energy, that, like a hum of energy that comes from you. So when do you give yourself that time to pause, reflect, and do the analysis that failure demands of us?
2: Probably not enough. Ever? Um, Ever? I, I do, I do. So I, I made a rule a year and a half ago now, at the beginning of 2020, to take weekends, which sounds insane. Um, but it was actually, that was my kind of like hard and fast rule. No way around it, always going to do it. Unless it's like a big crisis, in which case, you know, having a business, mm. you can't really decide when they fall. Um, well, explain
1: what, to take weekends? Like so
2: not to, so to not work on weekends at all. No ifs, no buts. Work phone isn't there. Everything you look is at social outside stearings. of that. Um, I don't have notifications on. So I don't have notifications on anyway, but, you know, as in, I really try to be beyond that. It's different in lockdown. There'll be things like, what do you do? Um, But but yeah, kind of that was one of it. And I really try that. And I think in being able to step back in that way, even if it's not a kind of like, this is a list of achievements I've done this week, it's actually being able to acknowledge as well and just to be able to spend a bit of time away from things. Being completely honest, that's something I really want to work on. And I talk Mm -hmm. about it within the book too, is the idea of internalizing success and actually allowing yourself to acknowledge, accept, and celebrate success even if it's only with like an under desk fist pump it doesn't need to be about like popping a bottle of champagne and it usually isn't I mean half the success I'll have will come in the middle of the work day and I'm not popping champagne um (laughs) but like it is just about you know, being able to say, like, that was good, that was great, because otherwise you only pay attention to yourself when you're failing, or you only pay attention to yourself when you need to, like, like kick yourself and kind of be like, do better, work harder, or have a bit more discipline. And so for me, it was actually, I kind of felt that I was really leaning on one side, and actually one thing I would really like to do better is to internalise that and to kind of think you can sit back and you can just have like, yeah, still work, but like have a few days where you think like, okay, I don't need to think about what's next. I don't need to think about how I'm going to maintain this. I don't need to think about longevity. I don't need to think about what's my next big thing so that, you know, this and that and the other lasts. I can just sit there and say like, that was good. That was great. Well done
0: very difficult isn't it I'm very much of the same mindset I've got all these different sort of hats that I wear I always say that successful people can wear many hats I love the fact that I can be dealing with a a startup one day a production company the next a podcast the next day a bit of live tv like I take a thrill from that but I also am absolutely certain to at some point every single day just stop even if it's only for half an hour and just be like right are you are you happy with the direction of all these little bits do you make sure you Give yourself that kind of headspace at the end of the day, lay your head on the pillow, assess, like
2: Um, no, but I probably should. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately. Um I mean I'm sure I have, but as in I don't think it's a part of my everyday and I think it really needs to be. I think it would give myself much better boundaries around the idea of success. Because if you don't allow yourself to acknowledge it, then it's only about Mm. making the announcement or, you know, celebrating rather than actually being about like, cool, you did that. Like that's great.
0: I used to struggle with the downtime a lot because I felt like I'm not being productive now, and other people are, and i are starting to slip and stuff. And my father-in-law, my wife, Harriet's dad, just said to me, listen, another way of looking at the word recreation is recreation," And that was a brilliant moment for me because I thought, yeah, do you know what? If I'm mm-hmm. just going out for a walk, walking the dog, playing with the kids, there's something in that for yeah. everyone. And I, I think we should really talk about the side hustle because I am actually concerned that we are going to have a whole generation of people that I just burnt out husks at the age of 35 because it isn't for everyone. And there is an expectation that it is for everyone and should yeah. be for everyone.
2: So I have some views <laughs> about
3: the. I thought you might, you know. The, the, you know. I mean, for some reason, hustle. I thought you might have a view. <laughs> That's on.
2: so strange, I can't believe that. Um, but but I think that there's there's kind of two sides to this. So I think that there's nothing inherently bad with the idea of a side hustle, and I think mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's hugely opened up the breadth of opportunities for this generation, for my generation, for the older generations. And then I also think that on the other hand, it creates this very real anxiety that every second that we're not working, you know, I say in the book, it's the equivalent of being in the office and taking a nap because you should be constantly working, you should be constantly creating. And also in this time, you're then not spending working the opportunity cost of resting is now really high. You know, you could be driving Uber, you could be setting on Depop, you could be starting your own business, you could be doing all of these different things to further yourself, mm. which means that we completely forget that rest is also furthering yourself and that stepping back is also furthering yourself and that going to the pub with your friends is also furthering yourself when yeah. you also have the discipline on the other side of that. And that's what worries me. I will be the first to say that side hustles are fantastic. I started my businesses through side hustles. I started them while I was, well; it wasn't my main thing. And so I'm definitely not going to sit here and be like, they're not great. They are great. And I think in a lot of circumstances as well, they enable people to take creative avenues when they wouldn't have the financial security to do, or to do so otherwise right. or whatever it might be. But yeah, I think there is the other side that we do need to talk about. That's this idea of kind of, there was, I think there's this is like Alex Collison quote from like an article, which, yeah, which essentially says, like, when do we start calling a side hustle, a second job like a side hustle? No. And actually, that it's important. It's important to talk about and important to evaluate. Okay, there's a great part of this, but there's also a part of this that creates a wider problem for the way we work and the way we think about work and rest.
0: the issue for me is expectation, it just isn't for everyone, and I don't want,
2: mm. yeah
0: my kids growing up thinking actually I have to do it you know. In
2: in the same way as like starting a business is not for Mm. everyone honestly if you told me half of the shit that comes into starting a business before I'd done it I mean I probably still would have done it but I would have gone in a lot slower I would have gone in with a lot more I guess consideration and I definitely wouldn't have started my second business so soon after and while I'm so grateful that everything's turned out the way it has there's also been so much within that that I've Almost exploded, yeah. and that I've just thought this is so much responsibility every single day, and you can't decide. You can't.
0: I think you love it. Take though.
2: that mental. Di- I, I do. I thrive I think, off it. I think this is and your that's energy the problem. Source, isn't it? But it absolutely is, and that's probably the problem for me because then I don't. I also love the time off and the celebration and stuff, but I get so much more instant gratification and and delayed gratification, probably gratification in general mm. and fulfillment in general from this business side, but definitely not for everyone. And it shouldn't be. There are a kind of so many different things that you can do to get you know, similar results. But also sometimes the cost of that in terms of emotional energy, in terms of the time you have, in terms of the responsibility you have constantly and always for other people's livelihoods, for their mortgages, yeah. for the way they feed their families is not going to be for everyone. And it shouldn't be advertised as for everyone.
1: Here's an interesting question for you then because Jake and I were talking before we met you around, are you familiar with the Philip Tetlock decision making analogy talks about the fox and the hedgehog.
2: Um yes, but okay. I haven't heard it recently, so I will need a recap.
1: Right, yeah, sorry. Is is a psycho. is a famous psychologist that talks us about how we make decisions based on some people make decisions like, it's like a hedgehog where you focus on just one thing to Did you to... know
0: hedgehogs were that focused? I didn't. No. So, I didn't know.
1: They're yeah. cute, but didn't yeah. know they were that all,
2: focused. Or
1: foxes. Know lots of things about lots of things. They've got a wider interest, and it's not that one is better than the other. How would you describe yourself?
2: Oh, I'd say I'm probably a fox, which I think also leads to the problems of, you know, as I I was kind of saying before we started the podcast. I think one of the most important things for me to do is to really hone in not on those details because I have painful attention to detail but actual kind of honing in going deeper and deeper and asking more and more questions rather than just expanding Mm. into more things and that's been a real concentration of mine has been like okay well you've now got two businesses and a personal brand that has x amount of work so what can you do to dive deeper into those rather than being like new thing like shiny new thing and that's one of my big weaknesses
0: are you a control freak Yes. So if you know you've got blind spots, Mm -hmm. do you fill those blind spots with other people or do you not trust other people to fill those blind spots for you?
2: So I'd say that you have to trust other people to fill those blind spots, otherwise you have something as big as yourself. So you have to be able to delegate these things. And you might be delegating them to the wrong people, but actually, initially, it probably just needs a bit of time ramping up and to be able to properly trust people with them. But actually, you need to, unless you want something that is just as big as yourself, mm. which is absolutely fine. Like there is so much validity in that as well. If you're trying to grow something or if you're trying to have a business or whatever, you can't be micromanaging and you can't be refusing to delegate because you want to do everything. Otherwise, you're just, you're just doing that. Yeah, it's just yeah. you. It's just all of that. Whereas when you can take people's expertise. So I always say that, you know, everyone within my business, because I'm especially young as well, almost everyone within my business is older than me. I say in one business, everyone is, in the other business, almost everyone is. And they, so they all have more experience than me in their particular area. Now, that won't be the same for everyone. Obviously, I know it's a specific case. Mm -hmm. However, if you can lean on that expertise, you create, you go from being like this size to being like this size because you've taken this person's expertise, this person's expertise, and their time as well. They're being, you know, they're spending their work week doing that. So you can infinitely expand the breadth of what you can actually do. And I think for me, it's about being a control freak on the things I need to be a control freak on. So product, brand, these things that actually, if they're not control freak, then it's not it's not my brand or it's not Shreddy or it's not Tala and it's not what those businesses were built to be. But there's a way that I can kind of delegate within that too. And beyond that, it needs to be outsourced. So
1: on one of the earlier series of the podcast, uh, grace we interviewed holly tucker from the not on the high street
2: mm, business yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
1: and she spoke really really passionately about how uh sophie cornish her business partner was the ying to her yang and i've read that you had uh, a business partner that approached you when you first launched your business what does he do that complements these blind spots for you then?
2: So just to clarify what we are talking about, in the first year, so what I when I started what Shreddy is now, as I said slightly earlier, someone came to me and they said, like, we can run the website and the back end and do the customer service and all of that. And for, I think it was about two weeks, I was like, no, no, until they actually got me to sign on with, like, a bonus of signing on because they were like, this is going to do really well, like, you should get involved. And being able to, I, I thought at the time I was like I'll be able to do anything because if they just have a problem I can just send them the ebook or I can you know just give them a discount code for their next thing yeah. or whatever it might be and I so didn't see the benefit in that and I was like I'm not giving this away or I'm not you know and so that was all about operations and outsourcing that and I've had that kind of throughout my career in various different things they'll be times where you outsourced paid marketing or times when you outsource HR or times when you outsource financial um, kind of modelling and all of that. And that is, it's so important to learn how beneficial that is because without that, you, you know, as I say, you're creating something as big as yourself or you're letting your ego get in the way of the fact that it could actually be done better.
0: Ego is so dangerous, right? So dangerous. When when everything becomes about Grace Beverly, that's, that's when... Isn't you, it? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Stop recording. <laughs>
0: it's, a, it's a real, it's a genuine risk though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, so No, 100%. What often stops that, I think, is is this thing of imposter syndrome. I know you've spoken about it, you've written about it. How is your relationship with imposter syndrome these days?
2: So my relationship with imposter syndrome, I'll be pleased to, and I'm pleased to announce, has completely changed. And this was after an article I read in Harvard Business Review, which was to stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. And I read it and I was kind of thinking... Like, but I definitely have imposter syndrome. And what I've realized is that I have self-doubt in certain situations. However, I don't have imposter syndrome. And the reason they set this out was they were, um, it's written by two incredible women. And they were saying, actually, why, if we're saying this many women have imposter syndrome, why do this many women have imposter syndrome? Is it potentially because workplaces aren't, set up or aren't managing well enough having women in the workplace or having black women in the workplace or making it a place where these people want to or feel safe working or can see people in yeah. the rooms that look the same as them. And as soon as that came out, and as soon as I read that, I was kind of thinking, actually, yeah, I have self-doubt about certain things. And I think kind of like, can I do that? or? Is this meant to be me? Should I really accept this opportunities that I've got because I don't feel like I'm good enough for it? Whereas actually I think a lot of the time when it's imposter syndrome or what I see as imposter syndrome would come in, it would be instead because, you know, because I don't see any mm. you know, other 24 year old women doing it or because I'm not taken seriously in certain situations or whatever it might yeah. be. And I've kind of had to reframe that for myself and also have wanted to reframe that within my organization is making sure people don't feel that when they're in higher-up positions, they have that imposter syndrome. Is it because, you know, I've been sitting in a boardroom and have never been addressed when the man sitting next to me is constantly addressed and I'm the one that makes the decisions? Yeah. And, and usually the case is being able to break it down and kind of saying, huh, okay, actually, like I have self-doubt about certain things and I have kind of resistance and boundaries around this. Um, and other times people and, and, and the women who are so constantly told they have imposter syndrome are actually the workplaces aren't made for them or they don't have good enough maternity leave or they don't you know, yeah. set up places that mean that they can you know, do this, that and the other.
1: So we read an interesting stat before you came on about that only one in five businesses are run by women mm-hmm. or only 9% of business loans are accessed mm-hmm. by women. So if we're going to reframe it and sort of get rid of this idea of imposter syndrome doesn't really exist, it might be self-doubt, what advice would you give to any women listening to this that maybe have a dream of becoming independent that you've learned?
2: Well, I think I'd say don't believe you are an imposter. You're not an imposter. And if you feel like you are an imposter, why is that? Is that because you can't see anyone sitting in the position you're in? Is it because you've been taught to kind of be secondary or whatever it might be and really analyse that and and but there'll still be self doubt. There'll still still be areas where. And also, I think I still have self doubt in areas where because I actually I'm not very good at that. And I, so self doubt's
0: not unhealthy. Exactly,
2: though. and it's not. And it, it gives you fight on the one mm. hand, and it also gives you like a lot of the time self doubt for me will kick me out the ass to actually like mm. get better at something that I need to get better at. Mm. Um, and so I'd say it's about analysing the situation. But I, I mean. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the statistics need to get better. And I think what we also need to do, it's important to ask women what they can do to better situate with themselves within those examples. But I also think it's important not to put the onus on women for what they can do differently to not feel like that, and instead put the onus on people to be better at making sure that funding's there, making sure they're lifting people up when they can, making sure they're saying people's names in in rooms they aren't in, and all of those things that can actually structurally improve.
0: And I think that it's great for you to sit here um, as a female entrepreneur and talk about this, but I think there's a, a really strong role for men as well. I think that, that men have to decide to be an ally for women, basically, mm. and they, they have to say the right things and do the right things, not necessarily when there's a woman sitting in front of them who wants a loan or wants to set up a business or is an entrepreneur, but all the time. Yeah. I think it's not just about women fighting for women. like.
2: Yeah, 100%. And they'll, you know, I've never gone for funding, my businesses are self funded, and they've been, um, and, and kind of, the difference will be, I can only sit here and say a certain amount, especially as a white woman, especially as someone who, you know, went to Oxford and all of these things, and there will be you know, it will affect other people so much more, and that's why it's also important that I do the exact same as well. Mm. So when I talk to people who say, like, we'd love to invest in your business, okay, look at that business. Like, that's doing, you know, fantastically, and really using that as well, I think, is very important from my point of view.
0: It's brilliant. Oh, I've loved sitting here and having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, We've reached the quickfire round, which we always do at the end of our podcast. Oh, I'm really bad
2: at quickfire. The end of our podcast. Listen,
0: so are most people. They normally give, like, a five-minute answer to a quickfire. Exactly, would you like a book? (laughs) That's fine. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into to be part of your journey?
2: Kindness, because I think kindness goes a long way, regardless of situation, person, anything. Um, And I guess comes into that manners and politeness. Big one of mine. Um, And then I'd say um, discipline as well, I think is really important. I think that complaining is tough without Discipline. There are things you complain about, and you can constantly, and I will all the time, but I also think that it's very important to understand what you can do to change that as well. Right. It won't always be your fault, but there a lot of the time you also can look at that and say like, okay, what could I do better? And then humour right. would probably be my last one, because it's nothing without humour.
1: What advice would you give to a teenage Grace just starting out on a journey?
2: I think it's difficult, because I think teenage grace now is grace now because of teenage grace but i'd say you know there's part of that that i really wish i had this unconditional view of self-worth that actually wasn't altered by my grades or whether teachers were telling me i was doing well or whether i got that audition or any of that and actually understanding that that yeah it might knock my self-confidence but it shouldn't knock my self-worth that worth is there unconditionally
0: Love that. How important is legacy to you?
2: Oh, I'd say not very important. I'd say for me, my legacy, I hope, will be among my friends and family who will think I was hopefully a kind, generous, and fun person to be around. And other than that, as much as I'd like to, you know, build something for the people around me, I think it's less so about being known for something for me. Other than with those people, Mm. I think that matters most, probably.
1: Nice. So can you suggest one book that our listeners should really read?
2: I love Educated by Tara Westover. I read that quite recently, so I think I've now recommended that twice. Um, But that I think it's a really so it's a memoir. It reads like a novel, so it's really easy to read. You know, when you're not necessarily forcing yourself through a non-fiction book, apart from mine obviously, because it's very easy to read. Um, But no, I think that it's such a different view. Of life, she grew up um, with her parents pre- preparing for the end of the world and kind of spending all their money on cans so that they could like hide in the um, like fields and all of that. And it's completely different way of life. And she and they didn't believe she could go to school because it was the government trying to get into their heads and everything. And it's beautifully written. It's such a great read, and it really contextualizes a lot of things in terms of you know different backgrounds and yeah, it's just fantastically written.
0: Love it. And final question. Your one golden rule for our listeners and viewers to take away from this for living their own high-performance life.
2: I'd say that sometimes productivity is a form of self-care and sometimes self-care is a form of productivity.
0: I think it's important. Self-care is not spoken enough when it comes to high performance and high achievement. Um, And I'm now going to totally ruin the conversation about self-care and looking after yourself by talking very briefly because I really wanted to touch on this and we haven't about relentlessness. It comes up every time we speak to an entrepreneur. Stephen Gerrard, the, the footballer and now manager, used the phrase which I absolutely love, all in. Are you all in and do you need to be all in to be an entrepreneur?
2: I think you have to be all in in terms of discipline. And I don't think that is antithetical to self-care. I think that self-care, that sometimes is self-care because you are mm. understanding that you want self-care. something. No, no, and sometimes... Being all in is a form of self-care because you're understanding that you want something and you're making that happen. That yeah. is self-care. Self-care yes, yeah. is not just about face masks and getting the bath and all of that. I think that's really, really important. So I think you need to be all in in that kind of understanding that if you're going to do something, do it yeah. and make it happen. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, relentlessness doesn't mean that you never rest or you never yeah. sleep. Otherwise it wouldn't exist because we're all humans and we all need to sleep. Um, and so I think, I think you know, i definitely say... I am all in, and the important thing for me is recognising that all in doesn't mean doing it all the time.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having it's, me. Um,
0: it's so good because it's so clear that you've spent all these years on this journey, and you, you, you're able to put the pieces together as to how you got there, and even more important than that, you're able to very eloquently explain to us how you put the pieces together. So thanks for your time. And one of Damien's favourite phrases is some people will light up a room when they're in it, some light up a room when they leave. And you've definitely brought such energy oh, to this Oh,
2: thanks. Podcast. I think it's more so, the lights, but...
0: <laughs> the lights are helping all of us at the moment. <laughs> Particularly those tired dads. You know, here. But um, like from both of us and all the team, thank you.
2: Well,
0: thank yeah, you okay. so much. Thank you. Damien. Jake. I like the fact that Grace is someone who I think represents on this podcast that with real determination and hard work and a will to do well, um, you, can, you can be anywhere in life and get to where you want to go. You know, she was at university and she, she decided to set up these amazing businesses. But I think the, the big thing that stands out for me, and I really want people to understand this because I know that she's got a big social media following. And sometimes I follow her on Instagram and everything looks nice and easy and life's great. She works so hard.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it was an interesting one for me because it's from a world that I'm not familiar with. So um, I think what I took out of it, though, was the commonality that we've seen with so many of the other guests, like you say, that work ethic, that innovation to set up a business so she could fund her own university studies, the willingness to pivot away from just being seen as an influencer and be sort of somebody, a real substance. I think there's so many rich lessons there that we can take from it.
0: And when you say um, it's like a world that you don't know about, well, you mean the social media side of her of her world. Because really, at heart, I th- I don't see her as a social media influencer who just so happens to have set up a good business. I see her after that conversation as a really powerful, brilliant businesswoman who also has and it's no surprise, has also managed to absolutely nail the social media side of her life so that she's engaging and interesting and inspiring and has built up such a great following.
1: Yeah. I think it's probably more the idea of sort of developing a following through social media and and creating almost a personal brand around her is something that like say at my age, it's something that I, that I probably missed. Whereas for a lot of younger people now that that's something that they will be a lot more familiar with, but I think the important thing was the commonality of, you could go back to, you know, 20, 30 years, look at someone like Richard Branson, the idea of having a really clear theme and narrative that he built the whole business brand around being David fighting Goliaths. And I think Grace has done the same thing, but used the mediums that's available to her. And that was fascinating.
0: And it's also brilliant news for everyone as well that's listening to this podcast, because there was a time, like I get a lot of people, Damien, asking how they can get a job in television as a TV presenter. And I always say to them, now is the greatest moment ever to want to be a TV presenter or want to be anyone that creates content. Because when I was 18, the only way to be a TV presenter was write loads of letters, travel to loads of interviews, have loads of meetings, likely start as a runner, spend three or four years working your way up, kind of be brave enough to mention to the odd person you'd like to be a TV presenter because in TV that always gets frowned upon because people think that your sort of reasons for being there are not quite right. Mention you want to be a presenter, hopefully get an opportunity, maybe land a job. And then at the end of all of that, all right, today you're going to go and do some TV presenting, right? Fast forward to 2021. Oh, I want to be a TV presenter. Great. Open up your phone, set up a YouTube account and passionately talk about the thing that you love And you're a TV presenter. That is the great thing that I think Grace represents for our followers on High Performance is that technology means the opportunities are greater and more exciting than they've ever been and that hour sitting talking to Grace is the perfect example of that. Yeah I'd love that,
1: I mean that's a really powerful way of framing it that I think we can, it's easy to denigrate this or to be cynical about it but the reality is that the opportunities are now greater and more manifest for, for anybody that's got those, those timeless qualities of a work ethic, a courage to back themselves, and a willingness to put themselves out there.
0: Brilliant. So there you go. If you've got a passion, harness it, make use of it, and who knows what the future holds. Oh, I really hope that you, um, that you enjoyed this week's episode. Damien, I really want to talk to you about something else that we're kind of working on in the background to, to doing these weekly episodes of High Performance, which is our first book High Performance, Lessons from the Best on Being the Best. And it's out in December, December the 9th. People can pre-order the book right now. Um, and I just sort of wanted to share with them the process of, of us writing it because we're two people. You live in Manchester, I'm in Norfolk. We see each other for pod records and, and not, not much else because of lockdown and various things. So it's been an interesting process, hasn't it, trying to get this book written?
1: Yeah, very much. I think uh, writing a book is one of those things that if anyone explains to you the process of doing it, you probably wouldn't bother starting. It often feels like it's an awful lot of hard work, but I'd say for this one, it's been a real privilege as well to do it. I've really enjoyed it. I think going back over some of the recordings, listening to the wisdom of some of our interviewees and trying to distill some key messages that people can take away and apply it in their own lives has been has been a real pleasure.
0: I've really enjoyed it actually. And I, I, I like the fact, so we've kind of written the book as one person, which basically means Damien writes. A chapter pings it across to me and I then change the chapter and send it back to him and he then changes it again and adds something (laughs) and then comes back. so it's gone back it's like a game of tennis basically where we're sending it back and forth but what we've what we've tried to do to make it sort of really simple and clear is break the book down into chapters that the learning from that chapter is really clear I don't know whether you just want to give an example Damien of one of the chapters and the kind of I believe genuinely life-changing stuff that's in there for people
1: yeah, definitely. So one of the chapters that we've, uh, that we've been working on is about consistency. I think one of the key messages that has come across from so many of our guests is that if you're good, you'll get it. If you're consistent, you'll keep it. So it's been about looking at who, who out of the people that we've met have spoken about those consistent habits, doing the right thing over and over again, and the relentlessness of it. And I think when we understand that, I think there's some real, real lessons that we can take away and apply in our own lives.
0: And I think the important message for me when it comes to this book, and I would absolutely love you to to pre-order the book now, when you get the book, it's not just about reading it. It is about reading it, learning from it, and then applying those principles. And I think I've written, actually, in the the intro, Damien, I was working on it a couple of days ago, just having a fiddle, and I think I put the line in there that this book is only going to be useful for you if you put into action the things that you're reading and I think that's that's an important message we have to put across this is not like a passive read it and enjoy it book this is a kind of um a book that's going to lead to people doing some exercises and hopefully improving their lives for good
1: yeah there's an old joke about some of these type of books it's often shelf development not self-development where people get it and stick it on the bookshelf and never do anything with it and we want to break out of that cycle and get people doing stuff so We introduced the idea, uh, I think it was quite early on you had this idea of having pit stops in it, Jake, where giving people the chance just to pause, reflect and maybe jot down some of their ideas based on um, the lessons that we're sharing that they can take and apply to do that and stop it being a shelf development book.
0: Brilliant. Well, let's hope it is all about self-development, not shelf development and the high performance book, the first book from this podcast series, Lessons from the Best on Becoming the Best is being written and finalized and created right now. So I hope you're happy with it and you can pre-order it right now. All you have to do is go to the link in the description for this podcast and you can pre-order the book right there. Thanks a lot, Damien. Thanks, Jake. As always, huge thanks to everyone involved in the High Performance Podcast. Thanks to Finn Ryan and all the team at Rethink Audio. Thanks to Hannah. Thanks to Will. Thanks to Damien. But most of all, thanks to you. Without you, this podcast would not exist. And make sure you check in very soon for another High Performance Podcast episode coming soon from us, a series focused on this summer's Euros. Can't wait for that. Thanks for listening.